In this episode of Full Stack Radio, I do a deep dive into building Drip with Derek Reimer and talk about some of the technical challenges they faced while trying to scale an email marketing automation platform. This is Full Stack Radio, episode 57. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 57 of Full Stack Radio. I'm your host, Adam, as always, and today it's my pleasure to be talking to uh, Derek Reimer of Drip. How's it going, Derek? Good. How are you, Adam? Good. So for anyone who's not familiar with you, do you mind just kind of giving a bit of background and talking a bit about how you got started with Drip? Sure. So I'm a, um, I guess you call myself a, f- a full stack developer. Um, and so I, I'm a Ruby developer and I like to kind of uh, get my hands dirty in the full full range of the stack, all the way from the kind of the front end user interface stuff down to the down to the back end. Um, so we started with Drip back in late 2012. Uh, my business partner Rob and I um, had just started working together um, a few months before that uh, on a product called Hittail, um, and. Uh, shortly after I started with Rob, just kind of, I was actually a contractor at the time, uh, just kind of helping him with product management stuff on that. And that's when uh, Rob approached me about the idea to build an email marketing platform. And that was kind of the the genesis for Drip. So um, yeah, for those who aren't familiar, Drip is an email marketing platform. It's actually technically a marketing automation platform. A lot of people aren't necessarily familiar with that with that term, but basically uh, think of like a typical email marketing system, like like MailChimp or Aweber with a bunch of um, interesting like automation features built on top of it. That's kind of the the simplest way to describe what Drip does. Awesome. Yeah. So the reason I wanted to have you on the show is because Drip is a pretty sophisticated product. And I figured there would be a lot of kind of interesting challenges that you guys had to face along the way that maybe some of the listeners could learn from. Things like, you know, dealing with tons of click tracking or uh, embeddable client side widgets and stuff like that. So maybe the best place to get started would be to just learn a little bit more about what the stack looks like at Drip, like how everything is kind of put together. Yeah, sure. So Drip is, for the most part, a like a monolithic Rails application, um, and we're hosted on Amazon Web Services. So we uh, we kind of have a, a cluster of front end servers that handle serving you know all the all the different types of traffic we need to handle, and then behind that we have a pretty massive uh, Postgres database instance with with replicas and all that good stuff, and a, kind of a fleet of um, job servers to do a ton of of background processing of jobs so anything from sending emails to ingesting um event data as it comes in clicks um you know events from SendGrid, our email provider and so we do we make really heavy use of sidekick um which is a an awesome ruby library for for doing background jobs um and yeah it's um we do have a quite quite a bit of uh of data to handle so a lot of interesting challenges there cool are there any like particularly interesting challenges related to that that you can think of? Stuff that maybe someone might not expect would be, uh, you know, such a problem when building a service like Drip. Yeah, so I mean, I guess the to start at the beginning, you know, Drip uh, Drip was not like a full blown marketing automation from the get go. Um, we really started as um, as just a simple way to capture email addresses from your website and send uh, follow-up sequences. So, um, you know, going back all the way pre-drip days, we kind of built this out um, 
by hand, you, you know, writing a custom little JavaScript widget that would pop up on every single page of our website. And, you know, it, not super obtrusive, like the kind of the pop-ups that cover the whole page. We wanted something that was just kind of, uh, kind of a little bit more subtle. So we kind of built this prototype and, uh, and wired it up to a MailChimp sequence and found that it was, it was, uh, kind of overly difficult to, to do. And a lot of other people should be doing this kind of thing. So that was kind of the, the genesis for drip. And so from the get go, it was just, you know, display this widget on your website and capture leads and be able to report like what your subscription rate is and how successful this forum is being. So what that required us to do is um, basically register every single time someone visits their website, we needed to record that and we needed to drop a cookie on the website so that we knew when they come back and be able to link up the the initial visit to the moment when they actually submit their email address. So that was kind of challenge number one was um, taking in all this data, you know, all it took was was one really popular website to install the drip snippet on their site, and all of a sudden we're getting, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of uh, inbound requests every day from their website. So that was something we we knew we were going to be taking in a lot of data, but um, I think it it happened probably in the first few months, even when we were still in beta, we started hitting like database bottlenecks. Um, so that was that was a challenge, um, and I think the first. The first big thing we did to overcome that was um, started aggregating data in the background. So when you log into Drip, you see a kind of a, a time series of people who visited your website on a given day, and then how many people submitted your opt-in form, and then even beyond that, how many people uh, registered a conversion. So you could kind of get an idea of how successful your funnel's being. But all that data is, you know, we started out just computing it on the fly and doing all these counts for a time series, and that quickly um, became unsustainable. <laughs> so so to get around that, we we started out by kind of building up a, a like a summary table where we could aggregate stats on a daily basis. And that was kind of our first step into into denormalizing our database and optimizing for performance. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I can imagine, I guess, like the way your service works, you're sort of getting hit with like the sum of all the traffic of all your customers, right? So if you're getting a request sent to you every time someone visits a page or whatever, and they have the drip snippet installed, you know, you get at least as much traffic as all your customers do combined. Right. Yeah. And actually one, one early decision we made, which I think was a, was a really good one was we don't actually track every single page view. Um, by default, we only track first time visits. So that, you know, dramatically reduces the amount of data we have to take in. And then we do allow you to do things like trigger automation based off of when someone visits a particular page on your website. But um, instead of like solving that problem by always taking in every single page view and checking to see if it matches the conversion, we just kind of get a little bit more intelligent about it. And we, we always look at what automation rules do you have bound to what certain pages? And then we we only send back an event from the client side when someone visits one of those pages and we make the decision in JavaScript. So, you know, we, we try to employ as many tricks like that as we can to basically limit the amount of data we have to take in to the to the bare minimum. Yeah, that makes sense. So when you guys drop that cookie on the client site on the initial visit, you're checking that cookie on future visits in JavaScript to figure out if you need to send any more data back or not. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Got it. So what are some of the challenges involved in trying to build like an embeddable widget that has to get installed on someone else's site? I can imagine there's, you know, a lot of challenges there that you have to deal with when you're trying to build something that needs to look consistent, uh, no matter whose site you're installing it on. Yeah, it's kind of like, um, we've just had to build up like this, this battle tested, uh, 
library over time, and it has taken taken time. And we still see edge cases um, from time to time of people, uh, you know, saying that the widget's rendering funky on their website. And usually, what it boils down to is some kind of um, CSS conflict. Um, so, you know, the drip widget is just a little like a little toaster widget you see pretty common these days on websites and um, so we wanted that to look as if it was you know built directly into the website and not something that was kind of sitting in its own container so we we kind of avoided going with the iframe approach which is what some people some folks do for their for their embeddable uh, components is they just kind of stick them in an iframe and and have the user like drop the iframe wherever they want it to appear on their website we really want it to look native to the website so we actually um, have this chunk of HTML and CSS that we embed directly into the DOM as soon as the client library loads. And the most important thing to do is to make sure that we're namespacing all of our, everything that relates to the style of that is namespaced so that hopefully the odds of colliding with an existing style on the page is is pretty low. And then we also make really heavy use of the important uh, clause in the CSS just to, just to make sure that we're, you know, um, overriding anything that's really critical to, to the function of our widget. Um, so yeah, it was, it was tricky. And, and the other tricky part about it is, you know, we're so used to, as application developers, used to pulling in, um, you know, outside libraries whenever we need functionality. So, you know, I think we're all probably spoiled with having jQuery present. And, you know, if we need some time zone library, you just pull that in and, you know, build up this bundle. But when you're actually having this uh, library installed on other people's websites, you have to be really conscious about how much, how large your payload is and, and how many libraries are you actually stuffing into this thing. So we ended up doing quite a bit of, uh, you know, kind of building our own solutions for, for example, for, for sending back um, Ajax requests via JSONP, uh, we kind of built a little tiny wrapper that does that without having to pull in a, a really big library to handle that. Yeah, so. yeah, that definitely sounds like a pain. So do you guys also have to deal with, I guess, like a lot of stuff related to cross-browser support since you have to sort of, you know, re-implement any fixes that you would get from various libraries that you could have used that would have solved this stuff for you? Yeah, definitely. Like we have quite a few polyfills in there, just basically uh, functions in JavaScript that put in functionality if there happen to be in a browser that doesn't have that. Um, yeah, and it's, it's tough because for our main application, we kind of support newer versions of Internet Explorer and then the kind of the latest versions of Firefox and Chrome. And we can be a little bit more um, strict about the kind of browsers we support for our actual application. But for this, you know, since it's it's hosted on other people's websites and those people's visitors may be on really archaic browsers, we want to try to support as many as possible. So we have gone through routines of like trying to support even down to IE7 um, in certain cases. So it's, it's a little tricky and, you know, you can't, I think the the lesson learned here is you can't generally nail it overnight. You have to kind of do your best and then just wait for people to raise edge cases and, and tackle them kind of like whack-a-mole <laughs> as they come in. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah it makes a lot of sense. Uh, I've heard Rob recently, your co-founder, talk on a few podcasts about some sort of a like major technical breakthrough that I guess you guys came to when trying to solve a problem recently. And uh, anytime I've heard Rob talk about it, it's been on a podcast that's maybe more business focused and you know hasn't really been appropriate to dive into the tech details so much. But I thought maybe uh, if you were willing on this podcast, it would be awesome to hear about uh, some of what those challenges were and what you guys come up with. Sure, yeah. So this is still kind of under active development. So some of the details are still getting fleshed out. And um, I'm kind of holding my tongue on a, f 
on a few of the details just to make sure like it's actually the way we're going to do it and and hopefully get some data around it but um yeah basically we're we've been trying to tackle some some major performance problems that really manifest themselves with um, some of our largest customers so you can imagine that the the top five percent of drip customers represent a pretty significant chunk of our email sending volume and just basically raw subscriber database size. You know, most, most folks have in the, in the several thousand um, subscriber count, but our largest accounts are upwards of half a million subscribers in their database. So a lot of the queries that we allow people to run specifically around um, filtering your subscriber database and kind of segmenting your subscribers um, can produce really complex SQL queries. Um, you know, you can go in and say, show me all subscribers who have received this particular email and have performed a particular action at least three times. And, you know, all these conditions that you end up chaining together ultimately boil down to joins in the, in the back end. Um, so it's been a, it's been an ongoing problem of like, we're, we're staying pretty much ahead of it for most customers, but some of our largest customers are really starting to feel pain around this. So, you know, we started evaluating our options. We considered uh, ultimately just sharding the database so that we can put really large customers on their own database or, or on a database that only has a handful of, of uh, customers on it. And, uh, you know, we've been pretty resistant to that idea just because you hear so many horror stories about trying to shard your database and making sure that you don't end up with hotspots and, you know, that you're, your shards are maintaining balance and and once you go down that route it's really hard to go back and that's what we've we've always been conscious of the fact of uh before we add any you know major new technology into our stack or make any major architectural shift like sharding we try to evaluate it really carefully and see how long we can go without doing that because you know once you make that investment it's really hard to go back so so we basically had this moment where we're like all right, we either need to start working on sharding or we come up with some other creative solution. And I think we really did um, hit on a, a good solution for this. And basically what it involves is, is doing some, some pre-computation in the background um, and, and utilizing Redis um, for, for maintaining uh, basically who belongs in what segments in your account. And um, this is gonna. This is kind of has a cascading effect where we've realized there's actually a lot of uses for Redis, um, specifically around computing analytics and just counting sets because counting is actually really fast in Redis. Whereas, uh, you know, if you're trying to count a specific segment in SQL, you know, it gets increasingly expensive as you add more, uh, as you have more uh, rows in your database. So, so that's kind of the the core of it is figuring out more creative ways to to leverage Redis uh, behind the scenes and make uh, maintaining segments of subscribers really, really fast. Awesome. Yeah, Redis is it's a really cool piece of technology. I don't, I'm not a Redis expert or anything, but more and more I keep finding cool uses for it that make it seem like, you know, it can almost be a default part of the stack for almost any application that I'm going to build. I'm always going to find some use case for it, you know? Um, so, I hear a lot about people using Redis for, you know, caching transient data and stuff like that. But I'm also starting to hear more about people using it as kind of a more uh, persistent data store. So with Drip, are you guys using Redis in sort of more of a transient way where it's just data that you can rebuild if necessary? Or are you even starting to use it for more persistent stuff where maybe Redis is the primary data store for that data? Yeah, so, so far we... 
so far we're only using it for things that it that can be repopulated from the database. Um, I think you know when we set out to kind of go this route of of using Redis for a bit more persistent things, less ephemeral uh, things by nature. Um, we want to try to get as close as we can to to ensuring that uh, that this data will never get lost. But um, so far, all our uses are basically things that can be repopulated from our database. Uh, we have hit, you know, being hosted on Amazon Web Services, um, you run into occasional problems where like a, an instance will just, you know, all of a sudden become degraded and Amazon says they're going to decommission it. Or um, sometimes you just get timeout errors because for whatever reason, there's latency within <laughs> within the cloud. So, um, you know, we've been leery of just relying too heavily on Redis because we know that uh, that there is the, always the chance of of data loss if you're not constantly flushing to disk, and um, that's something we've had to we've had to play with a bit on some of our caching instances. We also use Redis for kind of our just standard Rails cache, and um, we've we've encountered problems where you know we try to flush to disk too often, and you end up with you know, maxing out your disk IO and, and then that'll lead to timeouts. So, so it's like this, this kind of this balance of getting that, getting that flushing to disk window as tight as possible, uh, without kind of hosing your disks altogether. Um, so it's something that we're going to, we're going to kind of gradually build out and we're going to be, um, we're going to be really cautious about not storing anything in there that we're, that we're not able to rehydrate from our database, at least until we're really confident that we have our, our replication story really, really tight. Just wanted to take a minute to thank Hired for sponsoring Full Stack Radio. So searching for a new job can feel stressful, scary, time-consuming. You know, you got pushy recruiters trying to sell you on roles that you don't want, or job boards that make you feel like you're throwing your resume into a black hole never to be seen again. And sometimes you go through the whole interview process only to find out at the very end that the salary offer or company culture doesn't match what you're looking for. So Hired is the world's most intelligent talent matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities in engineering, development, design, product management, data science, sales, and marketing. The goal of Hired is to make your job search faster, focused, and stress-free. So instead of endlessly applying to companies and hoping for the best, Hired puts you in control of when and how you connect with compelling new opportunities. So you just fill out one simple application, and then top employers apply to hire you. So over a four-week time frame, you'll receive personalized interview requests with upfront salary information, so you can make informed decisions about which opportunities to pursue over a condensed timeline. Hired offers access to more than 4,000 innovative employers, including big companies like Facebook, as well as smaller emerging startups. And the size and type of company you want to connect with is totally up to you. So right now, Hired can help you find new opportunities in 17 major cities in North America, Europe, Asia, and Australia. And they keep all your information totally private, so there's no way that your current employer or past employer can see that you're looking for a new job. The best part about Hired is that it's completely free to you as the person who's looking to get hired. In fact, Hired will actually pay you a $1,000 hiring bonus if you take a job that was offered to you through Hired. And for Full Stack Radio listeners, they're actually doubling that offer to $2,000. So if you're a Full Stack Radio listener who's looking for a new opportunity, you can use Hired to look for a new job. And if you take one through Hired, you'll get $2,000. So if you're interested in more details about that, you can head over to www.hired.com slash fullstackradio to find out more. Thanks to Hired for sponsoring the podcast. Back to the show. 
So the way that you guys have everything set up uh, on AWS, what is kind of uh, involved there? Like, what are kind of all the pieces you have there? Like, how many uh, you know database servers do you have, or how many read slaves, and how many web servers? I'm always kind of interested in hearing more about either you know what people get away with on these big projects, or you know what sort of redundancy or overkill is there, and for what reason. So I'd just be curious to hear more about what your setup is there. Sure. Yeah. Our as far as our database goes, you know, our biggest bottleneck has been. Uh, trying to have enough RAM to hold all of our indexes in RAM. Because as soon as you, with Postgres especially, as soon as as soon as soon your indexes have to, you know, are not able to be held in RAM and you have to go to disk, it's just like hundreds of times slower. And, um, you know, that's been a problem. Some of our tables have a lot of different indexes, like our deliveries table. We, we have some flags on there uh, about whether the delivery has been opened or clicked or unsubscribed from and then there's other things like the actual contents of the delivery the subject line who received it and as you can imagine you know we want to get at that data in a lot of different ways so we have quite a few indexes on there and that table itself is extremely large so all those indexes um, it's it's really difficult to keep them all in ram so we've done some things like uh you know partitioning our our specifically our delivery contents and we only maintain uh the last 30 days roughly of of the actual bodies of sent emails so some things like that have have helped us to keep our indexes at a manageable level um our database we've we've always tried to keep the instance uh larger than what we need so having more ram than our data set and than the size of our data set that is uh we're getting to the point where we have multi multiple terabytes of data in our database so that's kind of not feasible any longer uh to to have more ram than actual uh, data set size um so we do maintain uh right now we maintain one replica uh on the the primary database that's that's mostly for failover um we've experimented with using that for spreading out read load um we've actually found that for drip we're pretty write heavy and it doesn't actually like we weren't getting much performance gain from splitting reads between uh between a replica and the main at least for the performance profile we have right now um but yeah like basically we've our solution has been to to keep increasing the size of our database box um as we kind of work towards you know optimizing indexes and partitioning and all those the fancy things so right now it's still just like one monstrous database that you guys are using yeah yeah awesome yeah it's actually it's really cool to hear stories like that because as someone who doesn't have like a lot of system experience i never really know like what i can get away with or what i need at like different levels of scale and you guys are obviously you know an app with a lot of customers that's doing a lot of you know rights and a lot of crazy stuff and uh, to hear that you guys are able to get by with just one big giant database, you know, that's full of RAM and stuff like that, sure. But you haven't had to like shard the database or, or do anything crazy like that is it's sort of good to hear because it gives you some reference points about like what people are doing at kind of different levels of scale. Yeah, that's that's kind of been our approach for, for most things when it comes to scaling drip is, uh, you know, with the amount of data we're having to handle, the amount of complexity that's, that's going on with our automation engine, um, you can only optimize things to a certain point. So it's nice, it's nice, it's a nice ideal to think that you can, you know, get two years ahead of all the performance problems that you're going to have and, and get the perfect setup. But at the end of the day, it's like, it's not worth trying to do that because you'll just end up spinning your wheels and, you know, constantly trying to optimize things, constantly trying to re-architect things in, a, in an ideal way. At a certain point, you just have to kind of stop and say, what we have right now is good enough, and let's keep 
let's keep moving the product forward. Let's keep building features. And then, you know, probably in six months, we'll have to revisit some parts of the infrastructure. But, you know, let's not let's not try to prematurely solve those problems if, if things are good enough right now. And so that's kind of the approach we've taken even for, you know, for our database. Like at a certain point, we may have to get more exotic uh, kind of Postgres stuff going. But, you know, certain articles I've read uh, even kind of point to the fact that a lot of really, really large services, even much larger than us, still manage to go with one Postgres instance. And really what you have to focus on is keeping the data set that you actually need to look at on a regular basis pretty small and manageable, which I think we can do. You know, if you start looking at um, what kind of data do we need to access on a regular basis, it's probably stuff that's been inserted in the last 30 days. So that's where things like partitioning can help you to keep your indexes small and, uh, you know, maybe you have a 10 terabyte database, but really you just need to be looking at the, the most recent terabyte or so of data. So then, you know, that's another way you can kind of still keep things manageable, even with a really, really large database yeah, data set. For sure. Yeah. How much experience did you have with like sort of, uh, you know, the advanced Postgres stuff before getting started with Drip? It sounds like uh, a lot of the challenges that you guys have faced have been solved by, you know, kind of optimizing the database and tweaking stuff at that level. Is that something that you've been sort of learning as you go, or is it something that you already had a lot of experience with uh, before getting started with Drip? Yeah, for me, it's definitely learning as I go. And I'm still by no means like a database expert, which is why we were fortunate enough to be able to tap a really, uh, a really good uh, DBA who's, who's an expert on Postgres. Uh, he's still a contractor for us, but does a great job. And um, yeah, we were able to get him on board probably in the first uh, about a year or so in uh, when the problem started to kind of exceed my exceed my limits. You know, we started uh, we started out hosting on Heroku Postgres, which I think we outgrew that in like three months. But <laughs> but that was kind of like our first first step was was starting with something fully managed, and then we've kind of gradually gotten a more and more custom setup, and you know have brought in some some expert help to uh, to get that all set up. Awesome. Yeah, so uh, another topic that I think may have some uh, some interesting stuff to talk about is just the idea of email in general. I think email is sort of like everyone's worst nightmare when yeah. it comes to uh, building web applications. Uh, so I'd be curious to hear like what sort of challenges you guys faced uh, when dealing with such a huge volume of email in terms of things like you know deliverability or even just stuff that people don't even know about email, stuff that you kind of had to discover were problems along the way and how you kind of fix them. Uh, is there anything that comes to mind in particular that you think would be interesting to talk about there? Yeah, I think, I mean, deliverability is is always an interesting topic. I mean, email is really kind of the kind of industry where there's so many people trying to do bad things that it's really difficult for the people who are doing good things to get their emails into inboxes. Um, so we made the deliberate decision uh, at the beginning of Drip not to build our own email sending infrastructure uh, because when you when you start digging into it, there's actually a lot involved there that really goes down to the level of like having a direct relationship with with the major ISPs like Yahoo and Gmail and and Hotmail and being able to get on the phone with them and make sure that you're not sitting on some critical blacklist within their spam monitoring system. So we knew that that was that was going to be a massive investment that we were just not going to be able to make. So from the get-go, we've leveraged platforms like uh, Mandrel and Mailgun and now SendGrid uh, to, to kind of be the underlying infrastructure for our email sending. Um, and so, yeah, in the early days, we were, we were on uh, Mandrel and Mailgun. Actually, we 
we didn't want this to be a single point of failure for our business. And we were concerned that um, you know, something might happen and trip a flag and get us get us blocked in one system. A little bit prophetic we- with Mandrel in that case, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <right? laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we've heard, we'd heard a lot of stories about that happening to folks, you know, just who are hosting their own marketing emails on MailChimp or something. And suddenly they've gotten banned and they can't get in touch with anyone for days. So I wanted to make sure that didn't, uh, that didn't put a nail in our coffin, you know? So, um, so we had kind of this, we built our, our sending infrastructure to be a little bit defensive in the sense of we could, we kind of flip a switch and either like just load balance our emails between different providers, which we did for a long time. We sent half of our email through Mandrill and half through Mailgun. And then, you know, if one was having problems or having specific deliverability issues that we couldn't figure out quickly, then we would just kind of shift our our email sending traffic over to the other provider. And that worked well in the early days when, you know, we didn't, we our volume wasn't nearly as high as it is now. So we probably didn't have the same amount of clout that we could, that we could now exert with our email sending provider. Um, so that, that kind of got us through the early days. And it was earlier this year when, uh, Mandrill made their big announcement that they're no longer going to allow people to send marketing emails through Mandrill, which uh, which was a, a really huge deal for us. Um, and so we, at that time, we had to kind of stand still for about a month and get all of our infrastructure shifted over to SendGrid, which ultimately was was a good thing. I think um, we kind of took it to the next level where we we now kind of manage our own dedicated pool of IP addresses and we have like full control over. Um, over our deliverability. So there's a little bit more maintenance involved with it, but ultimately it gives us like kind of full control over, over our sending. So, so does that mean that every email that gets sent from drip is getting sent from an IP address that nobody else is ever going to be able to send email through basically? Yeah. So, so it's managed by SendGrid, and we, we basically maintain kind of the, a shared IP pool model. So we have, a, you know, kind of a general pool of, of IP addresses that we make sure to, monitor closely their reputation, make sure they're not getting on blacklists and and stuff like that. And so basically no, no email sender outside of the drip ecosystem can impact uh, the reputation of those IP addresses. So it really kind of firewalls us off from, from any bad actors within, within the SendGrid system. Awesome. Which is nice. What made you guys decide to go with SendGrid? This is just kind of a question that came up for me the other day and sort of the post-Mandrill world we're in now. Yeah. Um, so we, we kind of did our research as quickly as we could. And uh, SendGrid surfaced as, you know, one of the one of the largest providers in the industry. And really at this point, we're looking for we're looking for stability. We're looking for someone who's been around for a while. And SendGrid definitely fit that bill. Um, the other service, you know, there were a couple other services we evaluated. SparkPost was another one. Um, their system looks really nice. So re- what it came down to was, have they been around a while? Do they have a really good reputation in the industry? Um, you know, and are they easy to work with? So we we reached out to, to SendGrid early on and kind of made direct contact with some of their folks. And so far, they've been been really great to work with. So yeah, it wasn't... Uh, wasn't super scientific and we had to kind of make the decision quickly. So it's kind of go, go with someone who who's trusted in the industry. Cool. Uh, something else I've been kind of wondering about for a while. I tried to look into this, but couldn't really find any clear kind of canonical resource for this information. Uh, but anytime that I want to set up email through like a service like Mailgun or SendGrid, they always force me to set up things like SPF or DKIM with my DNS, right? But with Drip, you guys don't actually require the customer to do any of that stuff with whatever domain that they're using to send email. So I'm curious what you guys are doing there to sort of maintain that high deliverability 
uh, while still kind of keeping that good experience for the customer where they don't have to go and muck around, you know, with their DNS or their hosting or any of that stuff. Totally. Yeah. So, so this is kind of the model that, that most, um, email marketing providers take, which is they basically maintain some shared domain, similar to IPs, they have shared sending domains. And so, um, for drip, we, we have a high reputation domain that sent many millions of emails and kind of the ISPs are, are used to receiving, um, a mix of different emails from different people through this sending domain. Uh, so, you know, when, the, the biggest way to spot this happening is if you look in Gmail and you see that an email is from a certain person, they'll, Gmail will append a via drip email or whatever the, the sending domain is. So they provide transparency about you know the fact that it's being sent through a separate domain. Uh, but really this is, it's actually, a lot of people assume that this is a, um, a worse way to send email or has a way a method that has poor deliverability and actually for for somebody who hasn't sent a whole lot of um of marketing emails it's actually a better way to go to leverage an existing high reputation sending domain so a lot of our smaller users who have just a couple hundred subscribers they're just getting started in email marketing they're definitely better off sending through our um, our existing shared ips and shared sending domains until they build up kind of their own reputation against their domain at which point then it becomes a little bit more appropriate for you know some of our highest volume senders they prefer to kind of authenticate their own sending domain and send through that so it's really a matter of like of kind of leveraging the reputation of our existing domain if you're small and then if you're big enough then then it starts to make more sense to authenticate your own yeah it makes a lot of sense from what i understand like there's there's two kind of primary headers there's like the sender header and then the from header and the DKIM and SPF stuff, uh, the only thing it's really checking is the sender header to make sure that that is actually authenticated, but not the from header. Is that the right distinction? Yeah, that's that's correct. And there, there's a number of different headers. There's the there's like the um, the return path header. So if a you know if an email bounces, where do they send the notification back to? There's the um, there's the actual. Uh, SPF and DKIM records for our sending domain will get appended um, so that you know the the ISP can verify that the sending domain is actually authenticated properly. There's even things like the use of when there's tracking links that are within the email, they check um, email providers like to check the domain there to make sure that it aligns with the sending domain that's being used. There's actually a lot of things that kind of go into signaling whether whether this email being sent is well aligned in its use of domains. So if there's a bunch of different domains there, then that's usually a signal that uh, that it's spam. So. And how much of this stuff have you guys been having to sort of figure out as you go, as you run into different issues? Yeah, we, I mean, most of this has been learned, learned along the way, and we kind of got schooled on it early on. You know, someone would come in to Drip, and they would send an email and, and find that they just had a really bad open rate. So then we would dig into it and figure out, like, really esoteric things, like if you... If you have a, a link, for example, in an email where you put the URL in the body of the link, but the actual href of the link is a different place, then certain clients will just uh, completely flag that email as phishing. I think Thunderbird might be one of those clients that just says, like, warning, this email is a scam. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, you start to discover those kind of odd So I can imagine things. that would be a problem uh, if someone's, you know, sending out an email and they have a link like, hey, here's my URL for whatever product I just launched. 
but because you guys are doing click tracking, like the actual href in that link tag is going to be your domain, not the actual link that the, the user put there. Right. Exactly. Just wanted to take a quick break to thank one of this week's sponsors, and that is Rollbar. So here's what Paul, the founder of CircleCI, had to say about one of their favorite features of Rollbar and how it helps them keep things running at CircleCI. Before we used Rollbar, we used a different error tracking service, and we were shopping for a new one. And so we did the, the tour and looked at, at Rollbar and all of its competitors, and it was it was really the feature set of Rollbar that was super impressive and that made us go there. In particular, the people tracking, I think, is, is really... Uh, it's not just a great feature, but it also kind of speaks our language because we're very focused on making sure that customers are happy. And we want to make sure that we have like an individual understanding of what happens to each customer. So the fact that we're able to click on you know, th this customer is experiencing a lot of bugs and to be able to follow the, the progression of bugs that they've been experiencing is very important. If we get an email from a customer and the customer says, you know, your your website keeps glitching on me and being able to to go to Rollbar and to say, okay, you know, this individual customer, this is how they're experiencing the site. Because otherwise you, you have to give like an overall state of things and overall things are looking good because if they weren't, we'd be dealing with it. So I've been using Rollbar a lot lately on my SaaS app, Nitpick CI, and loving it. Uh, if you want to check it out, you can head over to rollbar.com slash fullstackradio, and you can use their bootstrap plan for free for 90 days. So check that out, and uh, thanks again to Rollbar for sponsoring Fullstack Radio. So uh, one of the last topics that I'd like to get your uh, insight on is just kind of what does the automated testing strategy look like at Drip? So, you know, are you guys, you know, using TDD when you introduce new features or are you adding tests after the fact? Uh, what does it look like for you to test stuff that has to interact with third-party services since, you know, of course, Drip does a lot of stuff with integrations and stuff like that? Just kind of hearing more about your general philosophy there and what you guys are doing, I think would be really interesting. Sure, yeah. So, I, I like to think that we follow a pretty close test-driven development path, although I know for myself and probably most of our developers, we don't we don't always adhere 100% to the right test first methodology. But in general, I think that's that's a really powerful way to to let your testing guide your feature architecture. Um, so that's definitely definitely an approach we use. Um, we're pretty heavy on our unit testing on the back end and a little bit lighter on the kind of the view layer testing. We found that that if you, we can boil most things down into kind of the models directory or a services directory for all the other non-active record model stuff then uh, and get things into unit tests then that's that's generally the best way for us to make sure that we're testing kind of the core logic of our functionality um, and and then as far as like testing interactions with other services yeah we have we have mail sending and then we have uh pretty high number of integrations. I don't know what the exact count is right now, maybe 50 or so integrations with outside providers who are, you know, we're either taking data in from them, like a like a landing page platform or something like that, or we're sending data out to maybe a CRM. So there's, you know, there's a little bit of API interactions interactions to test back and forth there. Um, and for that, we, we like to leverage the VCR uh, library for kind of, you know, recording uh, different API scenarios and then maintaining kind of a copy of what the what the expected response is so we can make sure that our, our code is handling that that response properly. Uh, we do a little bit of, of stubbing of requests here and there too in our in our test suite. It just kind of depends on on uh, on what the provider is. But yeah. Yeah I can imagine it depends sort of a lot on what sort of flexibility uh, the third party kind of integration gives you in terms of 
what sort of sandbox environment they provide, right? And how easy it is to, you know, reset whatever data that you set up there or, yeah. or things like that. So do you guys do much testing of stuff like if you had an integration with Gumroad or something, for example, where you wanted to tag a subscriber when a purchase was made? Uh, would you write any tests that actually go off and like hit Gumroad and then verify that whatever API request you made actually you know resulted in the right change in state that you would expect and and that sort of stuff? Yeah, we do we do do a a bit of that. Um, I think you know part of it is just looking looking at the uh, the provider's API as a contract and and uh, you know sometimes we just have to trust that they're uh, that they're actually doing what we expect they're going to do when we send them an API request. Uh, we found that you know it's when you start integrating with a lot of different tools, um, there's a lot of variation in the types of APIs people expose, and a lot of times we're not we're not able to query back and make sure that what we sent uh, actually worked properly. So sometimes sometimes you just kind of have to uh, trust that they're gonna <laughs> that they're gonna take the the API request in properly. Um, but yeah, we, when, whenever possible, we like to typically verify that the things actually went through as as expected. For sure, I know you guys have like a whole custom billing engine that you wrote, and that you don't actually use like Stripe's subscription features. Uh, what sort of considerations did you have to take into account there when it comes to stuff like automated testing? Since you know you have to verify that you know things are actually interacting with Stripe properly and stuff like that. Yeah, actually, it, it's interesting. I um, I think we. In, in terms of testing that the API is functioning properly with Stripe, I think we actually had an easier time building our own custom billing engine because really all we have to do um, is create the customer record and, and put the credit card on file, which mostly happens in at the JavaScript layer for you know creating a token when someone submits a credit card and stuff like that. Um, so you know, if someone registers, we have to create that, that customer record and then all we have to do um, Stripe-wise is just hit hit their API when a charge needs to happen. And so that's there's actually only a handful of API endpoints that we have to hit. Um, and I, I have built other billing engines before that kind of leverage Stripe subscriptions. And I recall that there was a lot more like consuming Stripe's webhooks and making sure we're keeping state up to date on our side when things happen on the Stripe side. And then, you know, just kind of uh, querying the state of subscriptions and making sure the subscriptions are in the right state. Um, there was a lot more back and forth and, uh, it was it was a bit more complicated, I think, building on top of Stripe subscriptions, just in terms of trying to make sure, uh, you know, a lot of the data is flowing back and forth in the right way. Yeah, yeah, I guess it actually does make it simpler in a lot of ways, right? Like, if Stripe's subscription stuff works exactly the way that you need it to, then sure, you're good to go. But if there's like anything that you need to do slightly differently, it's going to be a real pain to try and make it work with Stripe versus just doing it 100% yourself and then only basically making one-off charges to Stripe. Right. So Stripe doesn't even know that there's subscriptions happening or anything. Yep. So it's yep. all the communication with Stripe is extremely simple. Yeah. And then the other the other thing we do, just anytime we're calling out to external APIs, we generally, um, you know, we obviously have error monitoring in place. We love Honey Badger uh, for, for all of our error monitoring stuff. But we, we, we try to like rescue anything that that gets raised that's not expected and make sure it gets logged properly in error monitoring so we can look into it. Um, and that, you know, we have at times discovered, you know, random ways that APIs fail that are not anywhere documented. So we wouldn't have known otherwise without just observing the error happening in the wild. And then, um, and then we also try to make sure that when errors like that do happen, um, that one, they're being logged. And two, if it's something that is just kind of like, 
failure in in the pipes between, then we just have retry logic built in. So, um, and try to make sure that our, we're rescuing errors. Like for example, when the billing engine runs and we're looping over all the subscriptions that need to get billed, if something happens on one subscription, making sure that we're we're you know rescuing that only. Um, in the context of that one subscription so it doesn't blow up the whole billing task Um, for sure yeah 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 i imagine now that i think about it you guys must have like a ton of stuff going on with scheduled jobs and stuff like that are there any interesting sort of stories you'd be interested in talking about a bit there yeah yeah we (laughs) it's kind of this uh this back and forth between like doing things in cron jobs versus doing things pushing things into sidekick um and it's always this push and pull of like we don't want to overwhelm the queues with too much activity but we also we don't like long running jobs because if something fails then then it's it's a little bit less transparent on and it's a little bit harder to to implement retry logic when it's just in a in a background task that's running as a cron job um so yeah things like um scheduling campaign emails that are due to send um or all that originally lived in this periodic cron job that would run and just kind of loop all loop over all the campaigns and evaluate all the subscriptions and see who needs to receive an email in the next window of time and then schedule that email up and uh yeah, this is one of those cases where obviously that that model wasn't going to last us forever, but it, we could make fu- make do with it for the first year or so of Drip. So um, I recall like somewhere around a year or two into into Drip, we discovered that these cron jobs were taking over an hour to run. Wow! <laughs> so then, so then we got to the point of like, all right, let's split this up into different uh, different cycles, and then start pushing stuff into our background job queue to to process and. So generally things, a lot of things start out as like a simple cron job that runs in less than a minute. And then if things start to get uh, much heavier than that, then we kind of start to, we start to run the cron job that just pushes things into the queue. And then we can use, you know, parallel processing to run things faster and, and all that good stuff. That makes a lot of sense. So with the way that you guys use Sidekick, I've never used Sidekick before myself, but um, how far out can you sort of push things? Like, are you ever scheduling jobs in Sidekick to happen like seven days from now? Or is it always stuff that you basically want to run immediately whenever the queue has time to sort of pick it up and process it? Yeah, it's kind of a mix, actually. Um, so Sidekick allows you to schedule jobs out as far in the future as you want. Um, so for a lot of things like things like broadcast email sending is generally just pushing jobs in and telling sidekick to, to do it instantly. Um, so you can end up with like spikes in queue volume where you have a bunch of jobs in there and then it's just chewing through them as fast as it can. Um, other things like, um, like when someone wants to perform a bulk operation, which is like, could be an import or just some big operation on their subscriber database. Um, we do get kind of clever with those things and we, we throttle them a little bit so that they won't, um, you know, won't totally overwhelm the queues. So for that, we'll, we'll make use of the scheduled queue and we'll start spreading jobs out kind of with milliseconds in between so that if you have 2 million jobs, they don't all get slammed into the queue all at the same time. And then other things like our, uh, you know, workflows, you can you can put a, stick a delay in a workflow and say, when someone gets to this point in an automation workflow, then just pause for seven days and then keep going or whatever amount of time you want. So for those things, we as soon as someone hits a delay node, um, we actually push something into the scheduled queue um, inside Kick so that you know at X days from that point in time it'll fire and we can continue to to run someone through a workflow. So 
So with like the automation stuff that you guys do, uh, when you queue up one job that's part of that automation, does that sort of like encapsulate the next job that should get queued after that one's done? Or do you kind of schedule them all at once? Or what's sort of your solution there or approach? Yeah, so so they do... So most things in Drip automation related are event driven. So, um, you know, the process of moving through a workflow basically involves um, events getting tracked. And by events, I mean like a, it's literally a record in the in the database that corresponds to a subscriber and it has an action like like it could be, you know, someone subscribed to a campaign or completed a campaign or uh, got applied a tag. So. Basically, anytime an event gets processed, um, we run checks against all your automation rules to see if any of those automation rules actually care about that event. So, for example, if you're if you're in a workflow, say you're on a on a send a campaign step, then you know as soon as we enroll you in that campaign, we wait on there until you actually finish the campaign. So, um, so until a completed campaign event fires for that campaign, you just remain at that step. So, um, you can imagine like event processing is kind of a heavyweight process and it'll oftentimes lead to more jobs getting spun off. But fortunately that's like a, that's a pretty standard use case for sidekick. Uh, just, you know, a one job potentially spinning off multiple other jobs into the queue. Very cool. So I've been going for a little while now, but is there anything else that you wanted to touch on before we start wrapping up? I guess I'll just, uh, to conclude, I'll kind of circle back on your point or in your earlier point about, um, how you know it's encouraging to hear that even a large-scale application like Drip kind of uh, maintains a pretty simple infrastructure. And I think, you know, I just want to reiterate the point that I think it's it's really important to um, anytime you're building an application that has potentially high scale to uh, to not try to solve all your problems from the get-go because oftentimes you can't even anticipate the kind of scaling problems you're going to have. Uh, you know, we take every three to six months, there's generally some new scaling challenge that we never would have anticipated. And, you know, some things slow down faster than other things, and you never could have guessed what's going to what's going to slow down next. So I think the the key lesson that I can share is that uh, don't try to go too far ahead in solving your scaling challenges. Awesome, man. So what's kind of the best way for people to keep up with what you're working on and what's going on with Drip? Sure. So I'm on Twitter at Derek Reimer. Um, I also blog occasionally at scalingsass.com. And those are probably the best places to keep up with me. Awesome. Well, uh, thanks a ton for coming on the show and giving me your time, Derek. It's been a pleasure chatting with you about this stuff. You bet. Thanks for having me, Adam. If anybody is interested in show notes for this episode, they'll be at fullstackradio.com slash 57. If you can rate and review the show on iTunes, that's always helpful. And thanks to Hired and Rollbar for sponsoring Full Stack Radio. Thanks, everyone. See you next time.